One, two, one, two, three, four. Hey everybody, it's Sam Jacobs. Welcome to the Sales Hacker Podcast. We've got a great show today. We're interviewing Blake Bartlett, who's a partner at OpenView and is a leader in sort of the discussion around product-led growth. Companies that start first with product, probably on a self-serve basis, they get widespread adoption through the product, and then sales is layered on after the fact. And um, we've seen, you know, the, the most recent great examples of that are, are Zoom and Datadog. But I'm, I'm sure that there will be more in the future. And so it's a great conversation and sort of the differences between product-led growth and then on the other side of it, sales-led growth and what the differences are and why the future really is in product-led growth. So great conversation. Before we get there, we want to thank our sponsor. Our sponsor is Outreach. Outreach triples the productivity of sales teams and empowers them to drive predictable and measurable revenue growth by prioritizing the right activities and scaling customer engagement with intelligent automation. Outreach makes customer-facing teams more effective and improves visibility into what really drives results. Outreach is an incredible platform. They're doing great stuff. Meanwhile, let's listen to Blake Bartlett on the Sales Hacker Podcast. Really great interview. Hey, everybody. It's Sam Jacobs. Welcome to the Sales Hacker Podcast. We are excited today to have Blake Bartlett on the show. Blake is a partner at probably, if not the most well-known, one of the most well-known SaaS venture capital firms uh, in the world, OpenView Partners. OpenView Is it OpenView Partners or OpenView Ventures, Blake? We like to go by just OpenView, <laughs> but the technical <laughs> name is OpenView Venture Partners. Okay. Oh, there we go. So I was like half right each time. So yep. Blake's a partner at OpenView, a VC based in Boston. He spends most of his time trying to advance the product-led growth movement, which we're going to talk a lot about, both through thought leadership and investing in PLG pioneers like Expensify and Calendly. He's been a VC since 2007, and prior to OpenView was at Battery Ventures, another incredible company uh, and firm, where he invested in companies like Glassdoor, Wayfair, and Optimizely, all of which we've heard of. Blake, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we're excited. So uh, I just read a little bit of, you know, the overview of, of OpenView, but give us in your words, uh, just the high level of OpenView. And I guess to the point of, you know, some of the things that I referenced, what is it that you feel makes OpenView different, unique and interesting as it relates to a provider of capital to, uh, to high growth early stage companies? Yeah, so the the core thing to think about with OpenView is that it's all about focus. Um, I think VCs kind of have this funny tendency to not practice what they preach. <laughs> so they go to board meetings, they talk to their portfolio companies, and they say, focus, focus, focus. You can't be all things to all people. Pick a lane, focus on your ICP, so on and so forth. And then they turn around and leave the board meeting and go operate the firm um, in a completely sort of, in a way that completely violates that sort of instruction that they gave. You know, they're investing in every sort of sector under the sun, every geography you can imagine, every stage from like pre seed with two guys in a garage all the way up to, you know, pre IPO, $100 million rounds and everything in between. And OpenView tried to look at that and say, let's actually practice what we preach. Let's pick a lane. Let's stay focused. And so we only invest in SaaS or, or B2B software technically. So it could be SaaS applications, uh, infrastructure, developer tools, just stuff that gets sold to business that is software. And we're also pretty specific about the stage that we get involved. We call it the expansion stage, which is really just a fancy term to refer to post-product market fit. Uh, you have customers, you have some revenue, uh, and you're starting to, to to grow and you're ready to scale go to market. So it could be a Series A or Series B. It's not really tied to a letter on the round. It's more about you know the market reception of the product and is their product market fit. So that's all we do. It's all we've ever done for the last 13 years. And we really try to stay laser focused and practice what we preach. 
How did you all, I, I guess, to the point, is focus itself the benefit or is there something, I mean, obviously everybody's talking about the benefits of a recurring revenue business, a software business with, you know, 70, 80% gross margins, but how did you all land on SaaS as the area where you wanted to specifically focus? Yeah, well, I, I think that some of that is personal preference. Like you can be a great venture investor, make a ton of money, do a great job for your LPs and back awesome entrepreneurs, you know, focusing on consumer, focusing on hardware, focusing on fintech, focusing on uh, clean energy, whatever it may be. We just had a personal preference towards towards B2B and towards SaaS. I'd say for me personally, I have invested in consumer in the past. I've been fortunate enough to be a part of some great consumer companies like Glassdoor, which you mentioned, uh, also Wayfair uh, here in Boston. But I would say that um, those were t- the two exceptions. Uh, usually I found with consumer that I it was impossible for me to figure out what's going to be, even if there's good metrics, what's a flash in the pan sort of short-term thing that's uh, really playing on a fad and what has the long-term staying power. I always joke that if you tell me the uh, the, the initial pitch for Twitter, you know, I would have thought that's the stupidest idea on the face of the earth, like 140 <laughs> characters and that's all you can do and it's going to be a social network. And clearly I was wrong. And so um, I was just much more oriented towards being able to think rationally about, you know, here's a problem that I have in my business. Here's a product that solves that exact problem. I bought the thing. It did what it was supposed to do. Here's the ROI. I can measure it and I'm going to keep using it until it stops working. Right. That that just fundamentally made more sense. It was more logical to me. Uh, so I was attracted to BB for that. And I think it was pretty similar for, for my other partners as well. Makes a lot of sense. So one of the things we always like to do is just know a little bit about how you got into uh, what you're doing today. And you have an interesting background because you've only worked in VC. So walk us through kind of how how you found OpenView in the first place. And and then I'm just, I, I will be curious as to what you think the benefits and disadvantages are of not having been an operator. I think there are more advantages than people articulate, but that's probably, you know, a little bit of an uphill battle that you sometimes face when you're pitching yourself to operators, but I don't know. Talk, walk us through your background, how you got here. Yeah. So, um, so I'm one of those VCs who kind of uh, got into VC straight out of undergraduate and kind of by accident, I had some good friends um, that were working at this firm called Kane Anderson in LA, which was a little bit more of a growth equity firm uh, than a true venture capital firm. And we invested in a little bit of everything under the sun. So tech and non-tech, but we were really specifically looking for a particular, you know, financial profile of company. And so I showed up and, you know, I hadn't studied finance, didn't anticipate doing venture or doing uh, growth equity investing. And so I joked that I showed up and I, I, I didn't know how to spell venture capital. I didn't know how to spell private equity. <laughs> and so learned everything on the job. And really, when you start at a venture firm or a growth equity firm uh, straight out of undergraduate without having had previous operating experience, you're most likely to be in what's called a sourcing role, which is really just a fancy sort of VC term for being uh, the, the sales reps at a VC firm. So I was you know cold calling CEOs. I had to make 50 calls a day. I had SDR-like metrics. I have had to have a certain number of connects. Um, and my my ultimate goal was to get to a point where I found really interesting qualified leads or deals for us as a firm that we'd go and then chase, uh, do some diligence on. And you know, my goal was to try to get term sheets issued, term sheets signed, and deals done. Uh, and to be totally honest with you, in those first couple of years, I didn't really care what the company did. I didn't really care what the thesis on the market was. I was a coin-operated sales rep just hunting for the next thing that fit our profile. So I learned how to to 
talked to entrepreneurs. I learned how to dissect a business um, through a 30-minute or a 60-minute call and then make a snap judgment of, is this interesting? And should we go and spend some time pursuing it? Or should we never talk to this company ever again? Or should I follow up in six months? Something like that. Again, classic SDR sort of cadence or, or sort of young AE cadence. So I, I did that for a couple of years. And then it was a very steep learning curve, a very sort of interesting opportunity uh, to learn venture, to learn investing, to learn how to sort of do sales effectively to, to CEOs as a 22-year-old. But it did plateau. My learning plateaued in that sort of more dial-for-dollars-oriented model. And so I started looking for something that was a little bit more sort of oriented towards thesis uh, in terms of uh, the investment approach, and also something that gave me an opportunity to you know, find interesting opportunities, find entrepreneurs that I resonated with, build a thesis around it, but then uh, continue the process and do the diligence. If we make an investment, work with them post-investment as a board observer or something like that. And that's how I got into True Venture. I moved out to Boston from the West Coast. I joined Battery Ventures, was there for, for a handful of years. Uh, and then uh, six years ago, I found the OpenView folks and uh, joined over here. What do you think, you know, venture is so um, talked about and discussed particularly relative to like the total size of assets under management as an asset class. But what do you think some of the biggest misperceptions are about being a great venture investor? And what are the key lessons that you've learned since you've been doing it for, you know, uh, for so long? Yeah, well, I'd say the the classic most basic misconceptions is that first that it's like Shark Tank and that we just sit in our ivory tower and entrepreneurs, you know, everyone wants to come and, and sort of pitch to us and is is hungry for our money and we just get to say yes or no. The reality is, is that we want to invest in the best possible companies on the face of the earth. And so does every other venture venture capital firm. And so if you're trying to invest in the next Slack, like get in line, right? <laughs> so uh, they're not coming to you, you're going to them and it's sales, right? Right. Um, and we're selling a commodity product. It's money. And the you know classic statement is true is that everyone's money is green. And so how are you going to differentiate? Now you can differentiate with more money. Uh, I'll give you a bigger check. I'll give you a bigger valuation, less dilution. And that certainly does work. But you have to do that. You know, sometimes you can do that at your own peril uh, if you pay way too much um, and we're just chasing hype or something like that. So um, in order to sort of not screw yourself over by you know sort of uh, excessively investing at, at ridiculous valuations, you have to sort of pursue and differentiate in other ways. And so you differentiate through how can you help the entrepreneur? And what is your, do you actually understand the market? Do you have relevant connections? Can you make intros to candidates? Can you make intros to customers? Uh, can you tell them something about their business that they don't know? And will, or you're basically interviewing for and, and auditioning for being a board member. And a board member is not a, somebody you can fire. So it's a really serious decision. It's actually, in some cases, more serious than a marriage because a marriage, you can get divorced, but you cannot sort of have somebody uninvest from your company. And if they're an investor, they have a right to nominate somebody to your board. So it really is kind of an undoable sort of decision. And so that audition and, and how are you going to help and, and what's it going to be like to work with you, you know, is incredibly important. I think the most discerning entrepreneurs uh, and the ones that I certainly want to work with make decisions based off of that, not just based off of who's going to pay the biggest price and who's going to write the biggest check. Have you seen in this period or this um, kind of climate of you know, abundance of capital that it's not just our terms changing or is it just, you know, we're seeing movements on valuation and, you know, dollar size of check, but the fundamental terms related to, you know, what a standard venture investment would look like are still fairly stable. What do you see out there in the market? 
Yeah, I mean, there, there certainly is, um, you know, evolution on the terms. And, you know, if you, when I first got into to venture and into investing, you know, it was much more common to, you know, get uh, all the bells and whistles in the term sheet. So not to get too into venture speak, but things like participating preferred and a dividend and things like that were not unheard of. And now today, you know, 13 years later into my venture career, it is unheard of. But I would say that was a slow evolution. And there certainly are new structures like in the early stages, you know, people aren't doing priced rounds anymore. They're not even doing convertible notes. They're really, you know, doing safes, uh, which was popularized by by YC and folks like that. So there is some evolution, but I would say it's slow and gradual. I would say the biggest thing with the flood of capital that I've seen in the last couple of years is that everything gets preempted now. And so if somebody leads a seed round, immediately the Series A folks are saying, okay, a good seed investor uh, just led the seed. I don't want to miss the A. How about I do it now? And there's actually not a change in signal. There's nothing new about the business. It's just FOMO leading somebody to want to jam capital in at a big step up price uh, so that they can beat everybody else to the punch. And then the same thing happens for a good Series A investor does it. And then the Series B folks and everything is just sort of getting accelerated to a point where it's easy for entrepreneurs if you have a good business because you just don't really have to do the the sort of mind-numbing, taxing, annoying fundraising dance up and down Sand Hill Road anymore. But it can, again, be a little bit dangerous and you have to do it at your own peril because if you raise, I, I call it the, the Insta follow-on round, if you raise an A and then do the Insta sort of $30 million B after that at a you know 2X, 3X step up, you now have to deliver on that. You have nothing has changed about the fundamentals of your business. And so the the bar is that much higher. And the risk of if you don't sort of deliver on the promise of that, you know, insta B that was easy to raise, um, you're gonna be in a much more difficult, hungover situation come time to raise the C. And you're going to either need to pivot, you know, do a riff or things like that. So there are benefits, but there are drawbacks, and you know, you kind of have to be mindful of both of those things. Does this make you feel like you know, people use this word and I'm hesitant to use it, but the word is bubble. But do you, do you feel like we're in a kind of overly enthusiastic period of expansion? Is this to you the harbinger of some kind of contraction or correction that's going to happen both globally in the capital markets and then specifically in the venture community? Or do you think that this is just sort of like the new normal? I think it's a little bit more of the the new normal. I mean, there there has been a a glut and a flood of capital from institutional uh, limited partners who are the folks that invest in uh, venture funds uh, to try to get exposure to the great returns that people have seen. So in, in that kind of it does have a cycle. And so we're at the sort of the the peak or the, so the upswing of a cycle, and it will come back down for one reason or another, who knows why and who knows when, but it does ebb and flow. But that being said, so there are some bubble-like characteristics because there is so much money sloshing around and everybody has FOMO and they all sort of don't want to be um, sort of preempted. They want to be the ones doing the preempting. So that does lead to some overheated characteristics. But I think you've always had that. It's just a matter of how many companies sort of fit that bill. And are there is there real substance? Is there still something that kind of comes out the bottom of the funnel, even though there are startup failures, even though there are companies that flame out and that were just hype machines? Is there still sort of, is the denominator, is the bottom of the funnel um, getting larger. And I think that you do see that, right? There are way more interesting SaaS companies being built today um, than there were, you know, 20 years ago when there was a handful. And so while while there is a there will be a lot of burn capital and there will be some sort of sad VCs, <laughs> you know, when the bubble bursts, um, there still is, you know, large and enduring companies that are being built. Uh, and these companies are are sort of growing faster than I've ever seen before. That yeah, I, I'm 
it's, it's a great perspective. You've been doing this for, for a long time. So we talked about some of the misperceptions uh, and conceptions about what it's like to be a VC. But when you look at, you, you've had an opportunity to, you know, you've invested in Datadog, you've invested in Calendly. And one of the things you've talked about is product-led growth. So I want to give you an opportunity to just educate the audience on what do you mean when you say product-led growth and why do you think this is such an important time for this go-to-market strategy? Yeah. Well, I take a step back and, and frame it by saying, well, how does software get adopted inside businesses today? And I think the prototypical example that we can all point to is something like Slack. So you know, ask yourself, how did your company adopt Slack? And if you think about it, what I can guarantee is that you didn't adopt Slack because the Slack SDR cold called you know, the CIO or something like that. That's not how you heard about it. Uh, you also didn't adopt Slack because you randomly stumbled upon the Slack uh, booth at a trade show and said, what is this thing? Tell me more about it. You didn't put an RFP out, you know, so on and so forth. It was like all of those traditional ways that you typically adopt software is not how it happened. So how did it happen? Well, there's probably some random individual employee or a small group of folks who used it at a previous company or sort of have heard about it sort of, uh, you know, from their other friends at other startups, you got to get on Slack. And so they create a small team and they start communicating over Slack instead of internal email. And then pretty soon it expands to where the entire organization is communicating on Slack. And now you can't imagine your lives without it. Right. And so that way that software is adopted, it's very similar for Zoom, right? You discover Zoom because somebody, you know, sends you your first Zoom link. You're like, oh, this is so much better than WebEx. And you discover it that way, not through an SDR, right? Or, you know, Calendly, one of my investments. You don't discover Calendly because you get a cold call. You discover Calendly because a user sends you the link. And you're like, oh, this was so much better than the back and forth emails. And so you're finding these products and then all of these products are self-serve as well. And so if I find it to be compelling, if I find that Calendly link to be sort of a better way to do things, then I can create my own Calendly page and I can start you know, using it, getting the value, and pretty soon it will spread in my organization as well. And so since that's how software is being uh, adopted, and it's really by individual end users, I've kind of said that you know, best I can tell, we're kind of in a new era of software. I've called it, you know, not terribly creatively, the end user era, right? They are the ones that are buying software and they're telling their boss which ones we're going to buy. Nope, we're getting Slack, we're not getting Teams. We're getting Calendly, we're not getting something else, right? And so since end users are calling the shots, you have to now build your software company in a way that adapts to and embraces the end user, which affects you know the types of products that you build. You're building it with the end user in mind, not with the C-level executive in mind as the first primary persona for the product. And then you also have to distribute to those end users as well. Imagine if Slack didn't have self-serve. Imagine if you went to Slack's website and it said, talk to sales, request a demo. And that was the only way to start your journey with Slack. Their growth would be much less uh, compelling and uh, the adoption would be much more constrained. And and so uh, to distribute to end users, you have to make it something that they can adopt on their own, you know, with uh, the starting point of the journey being self-service. So eventually over time, you know, salespeople get involved and and it becomes a more classic interaction. But the starting point of the journey is the end user and their value and their pain and the self-service aspect. It's not sort of the traditional sales led, you know, MQL to, you know, SQL to closed one sort of funnel. If companies are still employing that, that the model that you just articulated, are they shit out of luck? Are they screwed? Or is there something they need to do? What, what's your perspective on the companies that 
that don't feel like they have the luxury, I guess, maybe it would be defined like that of, of, of being end user driven. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, um, you can get away with selling to executives for probably the next five years or so, but it's going to uh, precipitously drop thereafter. And if you aren't built for the end user, it's really going to start to hurt and it's really going to be an uphill battle as we move into this new decade of software. And I think the the best way to frame that, if, if that sounds incredulous to some people, think about the last era of transition that we had. In the 80s and 90s, all software was living on a physical box inside a physical server or on a physical rack in a physical data center. And the only way to get software adopted was to get somebody to install that box with blinking lights in their data center. Then the cloud comes along and Salesforce obviously is the one that kind of initially pioneered that concept. And it was all the naysayers and all the incredulous people in the world were like, enterprises are never going to put their data in the cloud. Good luck. This will always be something that's just for early adopters. That's just for maybe some SMBs. That's for the crazy people in San Francisco. But like, this is never going to be mainstream. And you got laughed out of the room if you said that cloud was going to be the way of the future. Now, here we are two decades later, and nobody is selling pizza boxes uh, to data centers uh, really all that much anymore. Right. And so I think that we're going to see, and that took two decades, right? Because Salesforce really was like late 99, early 2000 is when they yeah. started to get some traction. So, um, and, and the rate of innovation is dramatically compressed. And, you know, we're seeing, you know, this compounding effect of how quickly software evolution happens. So I don't think it's going to take two decades for the end user era to sort of displace the exec oriented, you know, SaaS 1.0 era. So that's why I'm saying in the next five to 10 years, I think you're going to be, you are going to be shit out of luck, or at least sort of um, hindered in your efforts if you haven't built for and embraced the end user. So right now it's fine, but you have to think about the future. Does this mean that you... When you're looking at an investment, as you said, you know, you're looking post-product market fit in expansion stage, regardless of whatever letter we put on the, the round. Are you discounting, uh, you know, like a mid-market software business that has the traditional SDR to account executive framework? Or you're, you're still looking at it, you're still looking at the unit economics, but you're still preferring a product-led growth company? Yeah, I would say it's more of the latter. Um, I, I have invested, you know, recently in companies that don't have a self-service motion, but it's really because I'm not thinking about, you know, what's the next 30 years for this particular market segment, but I'm more thinking about what's the next five to 10 years for this market segment and what makes sense for, for the time being. Is this an executive type? Is this an end user type that will buy self-service for the next five to 10 years? Or are they more likely to continue with the sales-led motion? And so you, you kind of have to think about about it on a case-by-case basis. Um, But if I'm making an investment today in a de novo young company and they are sort of have no self-service motion and I'm projecting out that this is really going to be like another 10 to 15 year ride, I need to I need to see that self-service. I need to see that product-led motion just because it is it is increasingly where things are going. How do you feel about just thinking about what company, you know, the, the lessons that you've learned from investing, because you you have this perspective, you know, our audience is primarily people running the company, salespeople, operators, CEOs, et cetera. When you think about the success and failure of the companies that you've invested in or entrepreneurs that you've met, what do you think the key differentiators are between those that have succeeded and those that have failed? I think for me, a lot of it comes back to why does this company need to exist and why did you start it? And one of the pet peeves for me is, you know, if if somebody sort of concludes that they want to do a startup, 
And then they start looking for, you know, where's the opportunity in doing some sort of MBA style, like, you know, we, we could do this, we could do that, we could do the other thing. I'm hearing more about this. And you're, you're looking for a problem to solve. You're just, you might be successful in building a, a company and getting some revenue and even having an exit for yourself. But for me as a venture investor, you know, I need to be thinking about what is the next company that can be a generational software company? What is the next company that is going to be large and enduring? And it won't be easy, but is there the possibility that this can be the next Salesforce or this can be the next Slack or the next Zoom or the next Datadog? And um, if you are looking for a problem to solve versus solving a problem that you innately know yourself, I, I just fundamentally believe that um, those types of companies, they just don't have the same kind of passion. And they just don't understand the problem down to a first principles level the way that somebody who is scratching their own itch does. And scratching your own itch could either be, I was the customer and I used all of the incumbent solutions in the market. They're all terrible. They all don't understand the actual workflow of how this is supposed to work. They don't understand the long-term vision. So I am building the thing that needs to exist in the world. And that could be a technological, uh, sorry, technological reason why um, you know things need to be reinvented, or it could be sort of truly a product and user experience and business strategy reason why something needs to exist. I mean, I think Zoom is a great example, right? Um, the, they just understood fundamentally what was broken in the technology and in the infrastructure of the latest and greatest web conferencing solutions at the time. They built a better product with a better business model that had this self-service component. And now it's the only thing people use, right? And good luck if you're WebEx or good luck if you're GoToMeeting. And the other option could be, I was I worked at one of those incumbent solutions and I know how broken like we were successful we had revenue yes but I knew how much we were sort of off the mark in terms of real customer feedback and we were only winning because there wasn't a new solution to come along and sort of be the zoom to our webex and so I'm going to go and sort of disrupt my old employer so I think you need to have that really compelling true reason why and deep knowledge of the market deep knowledge of the customer deep knowledge of the product landscape rather than just I'm hunting for an interesting startup because I want to be an entrepreneur. Do you do you have a strong point of view on product led founders, you know, product driven founders versus sales driven founders? Is it are you looking for, you know, uh, a technical founder that you can layer on go to market expertise with or have you seen both types of founders be successful? I've definitely seen both types of founders be successful. I mean, you know, I am, you know, the product led growth VC and like I shout this stuff from the rooftops, but I'm not technical. So I think that the the dividing line and, and the real interesting opportunity is, are you talking about technology and the lines of code? Or are you talking about what that ultimately abstracts out to be, which is the product? And you can be product focused and you can be product centric and you can be product led without being technical. Uh, because we all use products. We all know products. We all love products. And we can all understand how does this product actually serve the end user and actually address this pain point and actually deliver value without being able to write the lines of code yourself. Now, you have to be proficient to where you're not going to build a .NET application or something bogus like that. Um, and, and that's where a technical co-founder or a really great sort of initial engineering team comes in. But you don't have to write the lines of code yourself in order to be successful. Unless, I guess the only exception that I would make there is if you're building something that's deep infrastructure or you're building something that's sort of a developer-oriented solution, then since that's your end user and that's your persona that you're, you're addressing and that's the, the core pain point that you're solving, you have to be deep and technical um, if, if, you're, if you're going after that. Yeah. That, well, that's a refreshing perspective. Uh, gives us hope, all of us non-technical people, that maybe we too can 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 solve an important generational problem one day. What do you 
you mentioned that OpenView invests at the expansion stage. So you've seen companies that either think they have or do have product market fit. And you've seen, so they've already, we've already, you know, they're, they're either empathetic to the customer and to the user. They either, it's either a problem that they are seeking, you know, that is coming from themselves or they are one of these entrepreneurs in search of, you know, a business to, uh, to be the head of, but regardless, you've got, you, you all invest past that point when companies believe, and you've believed because you've made both successful investments and unsuccessful investments in, and they believe that they have product market fit. What are the key mistakes you see and we can, again, it doesn't matter what the stage we call it, but we can, for a heuristic, we can say it's like, you know, seed or series A, and maybe you're leading the B and you've seen these companies do something wrong after you both jointly agree based on the due diligence that you're doing at the point of investment that they do have product market fit. What are the biggest mistakes companies make after that point that ends up jeopardizing their growth trajectory? I think the biggest thing, if you do actually have product market fit, I think the biggest thing can be the biggest sort of pitfall you can uh, you know you can uh, succumb to is really trying to do too much. I think that staying laser focused on a particular sort of pain point, on a particular user, on a particular use case, on a particular aspect of your application, and really getting traction with that, and really doubling down on that versus trying to be all things to all people. We're going to serve every vertical. We're going to do you know, SMB, mid-market, enterprise. We're going to do product-led. We're going to do sales. We're going to... you know, And you just try to boil the ocean. Even though you can have this, this grandiose vision of like, eventually we will be all of those things. Uh, if you do that from... you know, if you, if you instantly try to do that as a million-dollar ARR company, you're just going to spread your surface area way too wide and you're not going to be able to manage that much stuff. So it's, it's not rocket science. It's focus focus, focus, and really let the customer and let the market pull you and tell you where to go next. And not on an individual basis, not like, well, there's one customer saying we need to build this new sort of whole feature application set. But you know, do the vast majority of our customers say we need to add these three sort of features that I can pound out in the next two quarters, then great, let's do those next three features. And you need to kind of you know, let the market lead you you do need to have some sort of longer term vision of where we're going so that you're not kind of just, uh, you know, iterating in small little incremental sort of units, you know, so to speak, and, and losing track of the longer term vision and, and sort of letting somebody else leapfrog you. You need to keep that North Star in mind, but, you know, let the customer lead you there and don't get ahead of them and don't try to go too wide. That's uh, it's great advice. You've talked about, and you just mentioned, you know, sort of a million ARR, and I think it's Correct me if I'm wrong, uh, which I'm often wrong, but I think it was OpenView that pioneered the triple, twice, double, three times kind of growth trajectory. Is that right? We are not the ones that did that. Okay. Um, however, I do have a connection there because um, it's uh, it's actually near Jagarwal at uh, at Battery uh, okay. who coined yeah. that whole thing, and I worked very closely with him for for about five years when I was at Battery. So the triple, triple, double, double, double is um, very close to my heart because of that. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it's a great heuristic. Do you? Do, I guess. Sort of to the point, you know, we, you, you've mentioned there's this Cambrian explosion of, of startup activity and that 1 million in ARR doesn't mean quite the same thing as it used to. Are you seeing different standards for what success in a software business looks like in terms of the growth profile? Do we have to grow? And for those that, you know, aren't familiar with the triple choice, double three times, it's, you know, I, and tell me if I'm wrong, Blake, but it's one to three in ARR, three to nine, and then nine, 18, 18, 36, 36, 72 as the profile of like a tier A IPO ready software company. Has that profile, has even that profile, you know, kind of like um, been raised or elevated in terms of what it takes to be a great 
public worthy software company? Are the standards changing? I think that well, it's it's much much less special to get to a million dollars of ARR today. You know, the way I think about it is, you know, just my own personal experience of going to events like Saster. I would say in the early days of Saster, I would go and there was a handful of companies that had gotten to a million dollars of ARR. And now you go and it's like everybody has a million dollars of ARR, so it's you know by definition just much less unique. That being said, you can still be a very compelling $1 million ARR company, but it's less about have you reached this magical sort of dollar-oriented milestone versus what's the makeup of how you got there. If you have two customers you know, with different use cases in different industries, both paying you $500,000, like that's a different quality of, error, of million dollar ARR versus we are a self-service bottoms up business. Uh, we're slack and we have you know, a thousand people paying us you know, $10 a month or whatever the, uh, the math works out to be. I'm bad at mental math you know, here. And, uh, and, and you can see that like the internal virality, you can see you know, how things um, are really sort of working you know, and seeing that there is true repeatability, not just across two random customers paying you a bunch of money that you did a bunch of custom work for and that you sort of did a 12-month sales cycle to close. But like this is a thing where it really does seem to have uh, just add water characteristics. Cool. I, I And obviously, uh, it's great insight and I agree. Do you... And so here's an, uh, just changing directions a little bit. You've seen some of these companies, you've seen Datadog, which we, you know, sort of like a prime example of a recent amazing company that just continues to do great, even as a public company. And the audience for us, for Sales Hacker Podcast, is lots of people that are not the CEO, but reporting to the CEO. And meanwhile, uh, I'm not sure if you're following, you know, sort of the trends in kind of like employee executive turnover, but the average tenure for a VP of sales or a VP of marketing is shrinking. When you think, think about great VPs of sales, great VPs of marketing, people that are revenue leaders that are reporting to the board, are there common, are there, are there common commonalities across the people that you think are really top tier when it comes to leading revenue growth and revenue generation for companies? And correspondingly, is there a profile of a person that you've seen kind of fail consistently when it comes to, you know, being a great VP of sales or VP of marketing? Yeah, I think the the biggest thing for me is, is this somebody who has a single playbook and just runs their playbook, no matter the market, no matter the, the space? Or is it somebody who you can certainly have a playbook or a set of playbooks or a set of plays that make sense, but they're in a bag of tricks and you can kind of you know pull them out as appropriate um, and know which ones to use? and know which ones to not use given the context, and also know when you need to create new plays. And so I think being too dogmatic and too rigid on, here's how you built a sales team. I've done it 10 times before, and I'm going to do it again, especially with the way that the world's evolving today, how competitive software markets are, the role of product-led. If you come in and sort of just bring that hammer and everything looks like a nail, I have found that to very rarely work. And it only works if the product market fit is is doing all of the hard work. And it's not really because of you know the playbook being the best playbook. It's just like, well, it was the right pain point in the right market at the right time with the right product and nobody else was doing it. So um, you know, it's it's hard for sales to take credit for it. Sales was just, you know, sort of shepherding the growth that the that the market was sort of pulling along. And so having this flexible mindset to really think about things from a first principle standpoint for this market, for this product, for this team, for this buyer set, for this end end user type. And again, figuring out what you use from your past playbooks, what you leave behind, and what you need to invent new for the first time, uh, whether you're talking about marketing or sales, is the best sort of leader that I've seen work. 
I love that answer. And so then there's like a corresponding follow-on question because there is a conventional wisdom out there that there are stage appropriate leaders and that there's a person that will get you from, you know, zero to 10 and maybe 10 to 30, et cetera, et cetera. And, but at the same time, as you just said, the playbooks themselves are shifting and changing in real time. So the idea that there's been a person that's seen there done that for exactly the stage of growth seems to be called into question. Are you of the opinion that there's, you know, one type of person and the minute we get to this revenue range, we need to swap them out for somebody else? Or are you more open to, you know, promoting younger talent that hasn't been there done that because you recognize that adaptability and flexibility are probably just as important as the actual experience? I would say it's it's much more the latter than the former. Um, I would say having these arbitrary rules of, you know, the person that takes you from 1 to 10 is not the person that will take you from 10 to 50. So therefore, we must replace the person, you know, just doesn't make sense to me. I think the evidence will speak for itself. And it's both the evidence of, you know, are they consistently hitting their number? Like, obviously, that's the bottom line. And are they able to accurately forecast and deliver on the needs of the business and, and sort of what's said at the, at the executive level or at the board level? I mean, that's incredibly important. Important. You also look at other leading indicators of is the makeup of how they're delivering on and hitting their number. Does that make sense? If we're again talking about sales, you know, is it continue to be like the three hero reps who have been there since the very beginning who carry the weight for everybody else and we're not ramping new people effectively and you're hitting your number, but you're getting lucky doing it in an unsustainable way? Like you can look at those things. So you do need to think about sort of the leading indicators and the signals, but I think the data and the results tell you what you need to know. And, um, and I think also just a little bit more on the qualitative side, seeing that somebody in real time, you know, even after they've been in the seat for a while, that they're willing to disrupt themselves and say, here was the playbook that I used from one to five. And I am sensing that we need to evolve the playbook from five to 10. And so here's the way in which I'm going to cannibalize myself. And here's why. And here's you know the argument and please go with me. And then again, you still need to watch the signals, but like somebody who can show the ability to reinvent themselves and not just rinse and repeat everything, I think is the qualitative side that I look for to say, is this person continuing to scale, um, even though they, this might be their first time being the, you know, the the SVP of sales or the CRO or something like that. And they kind of really were sort of grown from within in terms of internal talent. Great answer. Good stuff. Awesome. Blake, we're, we're coming to the end of our time together. This part of the podcast is where we like to pay it forward. We like to know who influences you. Are there podcasts we should listen to that you think are important, books that you think we should read? When you think about, and, and you know, maybe following along in your footsteps, if we want to become a great SaaS investor at a tier A venture capital firm, what do you recommend we do in terms of ways of learning and you know content we need to consume and all that good stuff? Yeah, I'd say books. I mean, there, there's, um, you know, there's a lot that, that I like. I would say my two favorites are probably, and they kind of really go along together uh, very nicely. There's one that's uh, called Mindset, and then there's Grit. And, and I'm sure, you know, many people have read, especially Grit. You know, it's, it's a very popular book, and it's awesome. And it really, it really points to the fact that it's not luck, and it's not sort of innate talent that leads somebody to be successful. But it really truly is um, perseverance, and having grit and pushing through the difficult periods. And, you know, it's an awesome book. And it's also not a self-help book that's based off of somebody's opinion. Uh, it's a book that's based off of empirical evidence. And it's an academic sort of work that's turned into a, something that reads like a popular self-help book. So um, you can know that it actually is true because it's empirically based. And as a sort of great 
companion to that is a book called Mindset, which talks about the idea of the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset. And that we have this sort of this misconception as people that like you look at the Michael Jordans of the world and you just think that he was born out of the womb as Michael Jordan with all of the raw capabilities of being, you know, the best basketball player ever. And you don't see him sort of in the driveway at the schoolyard, sort of shot after shot after shot after shot, practicing and developing the sort of iterative growth mindset in order to be truly, truly excellent. And so you kind of think this idea of like, you can become anything that you want to to be, you can grow into anything you want to grow, as long as you don't view yourself as a fixed set of attributes, and then you apply grit into that equation. It's the perfect one-two punch of being able to achieve something entrepreneurially or in any aspect of your career. Love it. Awesome advice. If folks folks are listening, some of them are entrepreneurs, they might want to pitch you uh, and tell you about their company. Others just might want to reach out for any other reason, mentorship, uh, additional following questions. Are you open to people reaching out that are listening to the podcast? And do you have a preferred medium for, uh, for non-solicited outreach from strangers? I'm very open to it. And um, I am pretty active on LinkedIn, especially talking about uh, product-led growth stuff. So just go find me on LinkedIn, follow me or add me, um, and feel free to message me as well. Sounds good. And it's Blake Bartlett, uh, partner at OpenView Ventures. Blake, thanks so much for being on the show. And we'll talk to you on Friday for Friday Fundamentals. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey everybody, Sam Jacobs, Sam's Corner, the end of the episode where I give you my thoughts on the interview, as you know. I really like that conversation with Blake Bartlett. There's a couple things that I think we we need to be mindful of and think about. Obviously, so many companies are focused on product-led growth. I think product-led growth is extremely important. I agree with everything Blake said, particularly this mid-market kind of $10,000, $15,000, $20,000 a year price point. That's where I think that it's a very difficult price point because if it can't be product-led, then you're going to need SDRs, but the price point may not be enough to justify SDRs. So really to drive an effective product-led model, you're going to need the organization structured in the right way. And you're going to need to make sure that you can support the sales team that you have uh, based on the price point. So product-led is directly related to the price that you charge. Now, one of the things that we talked about that as you, as some of you know, as uh, potentially revenue collective members or, or applicants or just people that are aware of what we're doing over at RC, is is this average tenure question of 17 months. And I was really happy to hear that Blake said, listen, it's not really about, you know, this person at this stage of growth and this person at that stage of growth, but it is about adaptability, flexibility. And, and you know, he said that the, the, the proof is going to be in the pudding and the results. But I think if you're out there listening, the important thing to think about is, is there a plan and can you explain the results? Can you explain the results? If you cannot explain the results and if the, and if you don't have a plan, meaning you cannot forecast the results, your ability to tell the story cogently and coherently about the business using data, metrics, and analytics as a consequence and as, as a, and as a consequence of that, your ability to predict and forecast the business. Ultimately, that is one of the key determinants as to whether or not you're going to be able to scale as an executive. So can do you understand the business well enough that you can explain the results and predict the performance? And is are the results a function of a well-engineered organization or are they 
clumpy and unpredictable. Meaning, is it, as he said, right? Is it is it two reps that are still accounting for 90% of your revenue and you're not quite sure why? Or have you seen broad distribution across all of the reps achieving quota? Have you seen broad consistency on a quarter-to-quarter basis in terms of pipeline generation? Can you forecast those results? That's something that's super important. And then finally, the second part of it is, Do you have the ability to reinvent yourself? Can you identify, do you have a a dashboard, some leading indicators that tell you that your current system is slowing or beginning to atrophy? And what happens when that, when you see that data, when the lights go from green to yellow, what do you do? And do you have the ability to learn, to bring in new skills, new knowledge sets, new expertise? Can you go out there and find somebody that's done channel partnerships before because you have not done channel partnerships before? What is your ability to to coherently tell the story of the next phase of growth? I think, again, the moment that you walk into the board meeting and you cannot explain the results or you're not sure what to do next is the moment that maybe you are not the right person for the job. That's not really dependent on a stage of ARR growth. That's dependent on the metrics and what the business is telling you about how its growth rate is changing and evolving. So really something to think about. But I was glad to hear, you know, a prominent VC that invests in software businesses say, no, it doesn't, you know, we don't, we're not immediately going to swap somebody out at 10 million just because we have this heuristic that zero to 10 is one stage and 10 to 30 is another stage. Um, but you do need to make sure that you are evolving as a leader if you want to scale with the company. One of the folks that we had that, that did scale was Travis Bryant from, from Optimizely. But regardless, whoever it is, You just need to make sure that you have a system, an operating system that tells you how the business is performing such that you can forecast it and that you are capable of learning and developing and changing and reinventing yourself with each phase of growth, which is the same task, by the way, that a CEO faces. Um, CEOs are just much harder to fire, which is why uh, they have, you know, roughly broader career longevity at those early stages. They're not impossible to fire. They're just harder to fire than a VP of sales. Regardless, uh, this has been the Sales Hacker Podcast. We want to thank our sponsor, Outreach. Outreach triples the productivity of sales teams, empowers them to drive predictable and measurable revenue growth. If you want to reach out to me, you can. It's Sam Jacobs, linkedin.com forward slash the word in forward slash Sam F. Jacobs. If you want to hear more about Revenue Collective and how we're helping alter the narrative of a 17-month average life cycle for a VP of sales and marketing. If you want to hear about how we're helping people increase their career trajectory, accomplish their career goals, and be better at their job in their job, then check us out on revenuecollective.com. And otherwise, uh, and by the way, it's perfectly fine with me if you don't do any of those things. I just hope that you're out there uh, having a good day. But uh, otherwise, I'll talk to you next time.